Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hey, Rick. It's just the three uh-huh. of us today. Okay. Right. So, so, Rick, I think you're the specialist today. So, we'll talk about it later. But, yeah. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned to <clears throat> Hoy on Friday night, I'm actually related to one of the characters in the book. Oh, hey. Just, um, I guess that's what happens when you mix history and fantasy. One of the Irishmen. One of the Irishmen. So, it is <laughs> actually Bran. Sorry. Bran Melmorda is king of. Melmorda is the king of Leinster in this book. His son, Bran Melmorda, briefly becomes the king of Leinster after this book is finished. But he is the start of what becomes later the Burn clan. Bran means raven, becomes Bryn, which becomes Burn. So am I related to him biologically? Probably not, but the way the clan system works, that doesn't matter. I would be considered to be related to him. Cool. So yeah, I was kind of surprised when he popped up in that book. And that then incidentally makes me I suppose by because uh, the same lineage related to Male Morda, who is the king of Leinster. Um, <laughs> a lot of the kings of Leinster die horribly in this period of history, <laughs> as they should. Bran <laughs> yeah, Male Morda actually gets his eyes poked out by his cousin, who is the king of Dublin, in real life. <laughs> it's 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 not the jolly Ireland that people right. think of in modern times right. at all. Speaking of eyes getting poked out, though, so a lot of the Byzantine emperor, emperors when they were deposed, had their eyes poked out. Um, But I heard that as horrible as that sounds, that was actually considered humane as opposed to, you know, torturing or executing them. It just meant that they could never become emperor again because if you weren't whole of body, you couldn't be an emperor of Byzantium. So then they were packed off to a monastery or to to their old, you know, villas, you know, one of their old palaces and then, you know, never heard from again. But a lot of them would then write their memoirs or whatever. So seems horrible, uh, is horrible. But I guess the alternative might be worse. So Jeff's like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather keep my eyes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm a a little dubious. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, But that was my, um, anyway, cool. So Jeff, you want to do the introductions? Yeah. We're here to discuss Scott Odin's A Gathering of Ravens. I guess we can start with which edition of the books we're working with. Uh, What you got, Rick? This is probably the same edition you guys have, me saying, which has really nice kind of caricature, almost maps as well. Yep. Of the areas. Yeah. Um, kind of very scant on details in Ireland. Like, considering there's the epic battle at the end, they, I felt they should have, like, like, I knew where these places were, but the average person reading this book would go, I don't understand. Where's that? Right. Um, and just so, just so you guys know, so the BH. In Dublin and Carrick Dove is a V. There's nine, 19 letters in the Irish alphabet. So it's Dove Lynn and Carrick Dove, which might have, uh, might sound odd if you look at it in print. Hmm. Very cool. And mine was a library copy. I don't know if you bought yours, but I had a little, we left a little maze inside. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> and it says, Happy Halloween, little apple maze with a little ghost on it. So I love that. Yeah. And then I've also I also did the audiobook, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How was the reading on the audiobook? Good. Um, it was read by Paul Woodson, um, and it was nice to at least have a sense as to how one person's pronouncing the names. 
Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're correct. Cause like when I was listening to the game of Thrones audiobooks back in the day, the guy who does the, um, the narration for those kept referring to, um, to Brienne as Brian. I'm like, there's, <laughs> there's no way, uh, uh, George R. R. Martin is pronouncing this character's name. This character's name Brian. No, no, there's no way to square that circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't actually know if the names were pronounced pronounced correctly here, but at least it was nice to have some kind of a um, some context for how they might be approached. Mm-hmm. Um, but cool. So any High Gaxia nominees? So many. Oh yeah. Um, although <clears throat> I think my my favorites would be. Um, Scrailing, which is the kind of pejorative of what he is. But interestingly, it's also what the Vikings called the Native Americans when they arrived in Newfoundland. Um, and I have to imagine Scott Oden knew that too. Because I, I Googled that to double check I was remembering correctly. And it it does seem to be particular to the Native Americans, not to demons in Norse mythology. So that's one word. And then sax. The word sax, it must appear that kind of Angular knife, it must appear at least 50 times in the book mm-hmm. without ever really describing what it is. Um, so I had to look up that one as well. Right. And so those um, are my two words. Um, the, there's plenty of other words for various spirit, spirits, like the Sidir, the Varger, which I think is like an undead, Norse undead, the Dirge, Guile, as used for magic, Shade, Wraith. There's like Minoshi, which is plural of Banshee, Gaius, Ensorcelled. That word keeps coming up in our books mm-hmm. lately as well. So lots of magic-based words. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jeff? What's what's one that you dumped out at you? So I, um, as I read the books, I highlight along as I go. And then before I join this call, I go over my highlighted text and I make notes. Um, I fell behind this week and I was reading right up until we started recording. So I've not had a chance to go back and review my highlights, but, um, but kind of quickly popping through here, I see some things that I had kind of highlighted at the time were spleen. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the spleen to call me your guest, um, detritus, bailiwick, desultory, those are a few words I got. I, I know that I have better ones later, but I can't remember what they were or what they right. are. Another another phrase that came up a lot was having sand in your belly, meaning to have the mm-hmm. guts to do something, which I thought mm-hmm. was kind of, I'd never heard that phrase before. It's so still it quite used quite often in the American West, like in Texas. Obviously, someone, you know, um, yeah. um, the word that, uh, whetstone jumps out a couple times, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to, to hone a knife. But the word for me was, uh, two words that jumped out were, uh, uh I don't know, a seer cloth, seer cloth, you know, to wrap, you know, mortuary wrappings. But the word that I really liked that occurs at least five times in this book is harrow. And oh, yes. I like the harrowing harrow. of Clontarf. Yeah. I like harrow yeah. because it has multiple meanings. Um, so in this particular case, it means to pillage or plunder. But also means to cultivate, to plow a line, and to to sort of irrigate or seed, right? So they're harrowing the ground with the blood of their enemies. Yeah. Um, and we also obviously know something is harrowing; it's terrifying, right? And tormenting, vexing. And because the first part of this book takes place in the year, the millennial year, right? So people think it's the end times. There's the harrowing of Christ when Christ goes to hell and brings out the virtuous pagans. And, and cracks open the gates of hell, right? So I like that word harrow. It has a, a, like at least three or four layers of meaning. Yeah, I think that's a great selection. 
Yeah. And it's, it's also an area of London, which I'm sure is mm-hmm. unrelated as well. Right. And I don't know if this is the place for that or not, but I also liked that there, I kept encountering um, either words or phrases that probably weren't, but felt like references to other things. Like there's a dog named Conan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one person, one point somebody says by cross, by Christ and by Crom. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Right. Uh, uh- Turlo O'Brien is a uh, Robert E. Howard protagonist. So, I mean, Robert E. Howard is very much in this, into this period of Irish history. You yeah, know, so, yeah. 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 Um, also, there's at one point near the end where somebody talks about um, how he doesn't want to play this Game of Thrones. And I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty spot on. And then um, they kept referring to people as fish fuckers. And I've got that Lamentations Adventure module. So <laughs> sure, of course. <laughs> so I think it's no coincidence because in the tiny biography at the back, it actually says he spends half his time in Middle Earth, half his time in, in Alabama, and then other times in a sketchy tavern in the Hyborian Age. So he's clearly, <laughs> clearly like a, a Conan fan. Right, right. Conan was originally an Irish name, so there's mm-hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle and so on. Sure. So I'm sure he's just going. So I've got a little. I've got a good reason to just shove Conan right. in here somewhere. Right. I mean, he's got Robbie D. Howard in the epigraph, and a couple of the people he mentions in his thanks are actually uh, Robert E. Howard scholars. So I think that's, there's no doubt that Robert E. Howard is, is a, a, ma- a major influence on this book. Um, and I love at the end of his biography, mini biography in the back of the book, he says, and this may have been written by his wife, he says, when not writing, he can be found walking in with his two dogs and doting on his lovely wife, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> Putting up with his, uh, well, I, I do know, I mean, we don't like to put too much into the historical, uh, you know, into the circumstance of production but he does say in the afterward and i think i remember reading about this book way back when it first came out in um blackgate that it was sort of written in the year when both of his parents were terminally ill and he was taking care of them so that was sort of maybe a way of like sort of purging the darkness that you know he was dealing with at the time he i read that he started before they passed away then he stopped to look after them for a year yeah and then he completely started rewriting it once they passed away Mm -hmm. so he had some kind of inner exploration yeah. So, Rick, what are your thoughts on A Gathering of Ravens? So, I thought it was great. Um, I got the dates wrong for the book club, so I thought I was going to not be able to get it done in time. But once I started reading it, I like went out of my way to make sure I got it read on time. Because I thought it was very compelling. It was a nice blend of the different like the Christianity, the Norse religion, and the pre-Christian Celtic religions, or mythologies, I should say. And it was um, definitely a very bloodthirsty tale. And um, quite harrowing in places to read, like the sacrifice of the f- by the father of his son, and so on. Um, I felt you really felt like you were there; that it was so good in its detailed descriptions. Um, I felt that he had a good blend of the what was historically accurate with the gaps, so that he could actually create this story that could feel real in this kind of sub-universe of his. It was a very good read. I'm looking forward to reading the second book as well. And I felt, I just felt it was really, really a good choice for the book club as well. Because at first I thought, this is kind of mostly historical. Is it going to get fantastical soon? And then it did fairly quickly. Yeah, good choice. Yeah. And I thank you, voters. The, <laughs> I remember the category had been um, orcs everywhere. And I was like, okay, th- as soon as I started reading, I'm like, really? This is going to be an orc story? Like, this seems like this is pretty clearly like set in. You know, a very specific time in European history. And then, oh, yep, there we go. There's an orc. Yeah. An orc redemption story, as one reviewer put it online. (laughs) I don't know if it's uh, quite redemption. Go ahead. 
uh, I don't know if it's quite redemptive, but uh, I guess redemption by violence, you know, in the sort of American Western sense of the word, you know. Well, and speaking of American Westerns, have any of you seen Bone Tomahawk? I have not yet. I do want to see that. Okay. This kind of reminded me of what if we hung out with one of the murderous, um, one of the murderous Native American characters from this like evil cannibal tribe that they encounter in Bone Tomahawk. What if that was our hero? Speaking of which, Craig Zahler, the director of that film, is a DCC player. Oh. yeah, yeah. And um he made that what Brawl and Saw Block ninety nine too and the um and the what was the other one? He made like three movies so far, but that's his overt fantasy horror, I guess. Um okay. DCC player and I believe a heavy metal musician as well. Um so there you go. All right, there yeah. I go indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um I dug it. I um it was um I don't know, it was more more of a masculine story than I was maybe looking for, even though we had um, a feminine main character. Um, it felt very broy in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways that like people who are really interested in exploring the, you know, the masculine energy of historical fiction where I'm walking around with my big weapon, beating people up um, in the way that that tends to be in general. But I think it was um, effective and engaging for the most part. I thought that the scenes of horror were really, um, really effective. I thought the the gore and the violence really pulled me into the story. I feel like there's a lot of really well done body horror that was um, executed very well in this. Executed <laughs> uh, very well yeah. in this, and. Um, I also thought that the the witch with her um, little flock of ravens was real cool. Um, I was struggling near the end, but that might have been a reflection of me running out of time more than anything else. But I did notice that by the by the, the last part of this book, I was really struggling to stay present with it. Um, where earlier I wasn't, I was really super present for definitely the first, the first two big sections, the parts, um, um, where did we start? Started in uh, Kattegat. So it's an island in Jutland in the sort of Baltic sea. Okay. Yeah. Well, they go into the cave. Yeah. 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 That whole section I was having a great time with, um, England was like real fucked up in a beautiful way. Um, and then, like, the first half of us being Ireland, I was really enjoying it. But when it started getting a little too focused on Bjarki and kind of the um, the politics of these different – it started becoming, like, faction play and moving the kind of the, the armies on the big battle map. Um, those are always the moments where these kinds of stories tend to lose me a bit. But overall, I really enjoyed it. How about you, Hoy? I think um, I was also in a sprint, although fortunately I finished at noon because I thought that's when we were doing it. <laughs> so I actually had time to think about this book for, a, for an hour, a couple hours. Um, not to the extent that you had the problem, but a little bit similar. I think that he was trying to do a lot of things in one book, um, which I think is admirable. Um, but he's trying to be fitting this into, I guess, what we call Wayne Scott history, right? Which is to to sort of stay true to the history as is known, 
as much as is known by the Battle of Clontarf and and sort of that era of Irish and uh, history in Norse history in the British Isles. Um, but to because of that, as you said, they start to have all of these characters that become a little bit hard to keep track of. Although I think he does do his best to give every character, um, if they're named for any reason, to give them some sort of defining, interesting thing that they get to do, even if it's just one sentence. You know, like when the, well, for example, like when he's being hunted by the uh, Saxon ranger, he lets that guy sort of have a, um, you know, when they're outside of, um, um, uh, what was the British the British town that they were, um, uh, not Glastonbury, the other one, uh, just before they get to Baden, right? And he's being hunted by the by the um, the Saxons, right? Um, there's that ranger that he he sort of fights, and th- that character gets killed almost right away. But you realize that this guy's has a whole story of his own. You could write a whole character, a whole sort of um, historical fantasy series about that ranger character if you wanted to, right? Um, it just happens that his story runs into Grimnir's story and it ends right there, right? <laughs> right. Um, and I feel like it happens with a lot of characters, like the like the um, the Danish grandfather with the boats, and he has that, you know, he he loses to Grimnir, but he gives Grimnir a good battle, right? Um, so I think, though, I agree with you, Jeff, that uh, Aitan, Aitan, uh, um, uh she was kind of weak because ultimately I didn't sort of buy like I just want to bear witness. Her, her that motivation of hers right and it's funny she got knocked out more than like a robert uh like a um like a edgar rice burroughs character <laughs> 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 so i guess she could you know take her lumps um i like the uh the the witch uh the witch of dublin though i thought she was an interesting character she reminded me a little bit of some of the the um sort of the witchier characters both in howard and some of the um the uh characters in the er the er edison um, the other kingdom. What was it? Not the witch. The witches, right? So some of the the wives of the the witch princes in um, the E.R. Edison uh, book. So, um, and and the actual witch of uh, Maeve, the witch. I thought she was also, you know, the old lady. I thought she was a good character too. Maeve um, the blind. Maeve the blind. Herself. But as you say, it is a very masculine energy. Um, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's uh, to explore that. But there are a lot of. Um, there's a lot of interplay where people are trying to reclaim or show that even if like in the Iliad or that, you know, these are nominally masculine stories, you know, they would prevent a, a flip side view of that. And I think there was an attempt to do that with, uh, Aiden, Aiden, but I don't think it was fully successful in terms of her showing like a sort of a different perspective on all the things that are happening around her. Cause she kind of, kind of at a certain point just says, yeah, go ahead. I understand what you're doing. Right. And I will bear witness rather than saying, you know, <laughs> um, so I, I think it's not perfect, but it does move right along. I really appreciate that, even though he's very sort of detailed in terms of like the landscape and the clothing, but there's chapters that are literally like one paragraph long so that you can just jump to the, the next thing. There is a slight sort of plot machination thing, though, uh, that I felt it was cool, but, you know, it starts in, nine, in the year 9999. Right. So like people are thinking it's the end of the world, the millennial, right? And then he has them go through the sort of this walk along the limbs of Yggdrasil, the world tree, and suddenly they're 15 years ahead of head. And that's really just him, A, not wanting to do a long travel log, right? Go back to the British Isles. And B, because he really, really wants to end this book with the Battle of Clontarf, right? <laughs> right? Um, because he could have set this book in 1012, but then he wouldn't have that element of the end of the world, the millennial thing. And I think he wanted to foreground that. And so 
it worked, but it's definitely like, oh, I'm doing a plot thing here, you know. Yeah, that seemed to be the only weak part in the book. Yeah. It's like that he didn't really need to. He could have, like, the Vikings had so many lands not in Scandinavia that he could have set it there and easily moved it. So I felt there was going, and maybe it was kind of preparing us for more of the fantastical, but I felt it was kind of like a, a deliberate plot twist to kind of just force the issue. Mm-hmm. It didn't have to, like you said, it didn't have to start in 999. Right. A thing that I also thought was really interesting and um, well done was the tension between the pagan old and the Christian new, uh, this like Christ versus the supernatural thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I liked how creatures who were connected to kind of the pagan old could even just sense when they were in a land where like the, the Christ, the Christ was like a stronger presence. And usually that specific kind of tension feels real cheesy to me. Um, the whole thing with the, like, so let's hold the cross up to the vampire. And then he like, you know, is um, backing away from the power of Christ. Uh, that kind of stuff usually like doesn't really vibe with me, but with this particular story, I thought it was interesting because um, without coming right out and saying it, the kind of the, my mind was filling in the gaps with um, this idea that belief is what um, creates power. And now that um, that people were no longer believing in the old ways and were now believing in this new thing and embracing this new thing, it was literally sapping these older things of power. And maybe those older things only ever, ever, only ever had power because we believed in them to begin with. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But I like this idea that um, these powers come from belief and mm-hmm. that as belief is shifting, then these things lose their power and new things are gaining power. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Right. And I like that he did it without it becoming sort of um, Christian apologetics. I mean, I, I think that he does believe that the finer parts of Christianity would still supersede some of the, the you know, some of the elements of paganism, but we see some of these characters like, like the willow spirit, you know, deliberately misinterpreting, and it's like the most horrendous creature in the book, right? Almost, almost one of the most horrendous creatures in the book, right? And it, it believes that it is Christian, right? <laughs> right? And and we have some people like reneging on that, like Nyal, right? Who was a Christian at the beginning, and it's like, nope, I'm damned, whatever. I'm gonna, you know, if this is the way it's gonna be, I'm going back to the old ways, you know, and and. And he takes the name Drogon, which basically means undead, like he's a white, right? Because he's not really supposed to be alive, right? <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's interesting in that it's it's not that you actually believe these things; it's just that you're you have this label attached to you, and that's it. You don't have to follow necessarily these beliefs, right? Right. Um, a much older approach to Christianity than say the modern one. Mm-hmm. And in particular, uh, you know, King Brand's uh, son, right? He's quite bloodthirsty and he encourages the bloodthirstiness of his men right um and not at all in any christian way right (laughs) it's very sort of old pagan you know uh you know the enemy of my enemy and you know um make them bleed before you do kind of situation so and i think it was been practical i mean i'm reading a lot about you know vikings converted to christianity for very practical reasons like oh well i've converted to christianity that means i can inherit this land or whatever or you know we can just form an alliance and you know they just continue to do things the old way that they used to do them um 
I don't think the book succeeds quite on the poetic level of like some of the Paul Anderson books, like Broken Sword or um, what's the one about uh, the Tale of Hulk. Um, so it's not quite as poetic as either of those two stories, at least in terms of the language, um, but it's sort of mining the same territory, right? So I, I did enjoy that also. Speaking of language, I felt it was very fluid. Like I think kind of to Jeff's point, it only really slowed down when there were so many names at the end. Mm-hmm. And I had to say some of the names out loud, like the Cholimurich, which is Limerick now, but it's like, until I said them out loud, it's like, oh, I know what that is. But, um, it, you know, there were so many, even like minor characters all got named, like the the three people, Aiton Meads on the road, who's going to join Brian Brew's army, like they all get names, they kind of get sub-stories. It yeah. just becomes a lot then at the end. But I felt that it kind of, it just made it seem so much more real as well. Right. Like you were feeling like a mime artist for the edges and you kept going essentially. Right, right. No, and I think it was important because even though the story is grim dark, the people aren't just pure meat for the, for the, you know, the uh, sausage mill, right? That by giving them names, we see that there is consequence that the, the, these acts of violence are horrendous. And, and, you know, the snuffing out of any life um, is not something to be taken lightly. But, um, what other things, Jeff, did you, uh, you're talking about sort of like this, this interplay between, you know, the mystical, the real, did that, did you find like the, um, did you find hemmed in at all by the real history of this book? Did you feel like sometimes when you read historical fiction with fantasy elements, you feel like, okay, well, they can't really change anything. So you feel hemmed in. Did you feel that at all? Or did you feel like it was wide open enough that you could sort of sink into it? Well, I felt it was kind of the opposite, that it was really fantasy. And then he took a few realistic bits. Got it. Put it in rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. I think it worked successfully then because he was more in the detail and the real life stuff was like a, a stage backdrop mm-hmm. that was kind of there. A little bit of action happened in and out, but it was more. Um, I felt he didn't have to be beholden to what really happened so much because it was just peppered in. He didn't have to be like he only had to have the battle on a set day in a set place. Right. And like these set leaders were there, almost all of them died, but he didn't, other than that, because there are so little, so few details in and around the time, it could be like, you could just make up bits. And hence, <clears throat> like I was saying, the, the three characters going to join Brian Baru's army, like obviously made up, but he could do that because it didn't really bend or break the history because mm-hmm. there's so little detail that he had to play with, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and- even though this is a well-attested event, it's still um, there's still a lot of uh, vagueness around this, right? In terms of uh, in Irish history, right? In terms of yes, there's a very Irish nationalist view that says, "Oh no, the Irish defeated the Vikings, and that was it. We were a whole kingdom for 150 years before the Normans came." That's the kind of preferred nationalist narrative of what happened. Mm-hmm. But really, it's very very confusing. There was all the civil wars remained. It's just the Viking raids mostly stopped. The Vikings who remained essentially settled. They didn't all become Christians straight away, but they essentially did. And they became so blended with the Irish that they were indistinguishable largely when the Normans did come mm-hmm. from the Irish. But that's a more true to the likely facts version of events. Um, I did notice in the epic battle, so the the accepted view of how the Vikings came into the battle was via the sea, and they were driven back into the sea and largely drowned. But there's not necessarily any proof of that. And also, he probably, Scott Oden, probably used that as 
It means to say, oh, we're doing a ruse. We're going to pretend to leave, but actually we're going to come back. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was his way of saying, oh, look, you see, they were in their ships to cause this. Basically, the Irish, I think, attacked them before they'd fully formed up on the beach. Right, right, right. Um, in everyone's version of events, that seems to be the case. Again, there's no proof of this other than word of mouth that has been written down. But um, again, this is where Scott Oden did a good job of kind of just saying, well, there's vagueness here, so I'll fill it in with something and mm-hmm. no one can prove me wrong. Right, right. So I think it was, it's kind of nicely done in that regard, with the history. Well, we just got a message from the guest saying that she has to confess she hasn't read the book yet. Oh, do we want to reschedule for another time then? <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a really interesting confession, considering that I confirmed with her just a few days ago that she was still going to be on the show. Um, <laughs> yikes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure. We'll figure that out offline, okay. I guess. But Okay. Um, but, yeah. So, well, life happens. It does seem to like this one was hard to get started. Once it started, it seems to move along. Yeah. But I guess the- so, but maybe <laughs> use your words and communicate that. Exactly. Uh, that's the whole reason I check in with people before we, re- yep, before yep, we record yep, to confirm. Yep, yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyways. Anyway. I think you should always you should tell the guests that if it exists on Audible, say, here is the link as a like plan B. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyways, in response to your earlier question, Hoy, um, I, um, I did not feel hemmed in by it because I don't really know the history. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, I, I, I'm not familiar enough with it to actually um, to have been felt like I was like stuck in, in, in any of these particular um, points in history. But Rick, as a um, author from Indiana, writing about um, the world in which you grew up in, did it feel authentic? Did this feel like this was written by somebody who was a part of this world? Or did this feel like this was an outsider looking in? No, I, I think he did a very good job of making it seem authentic to the known version of events and even down to the spellings like he did look up all the correct spellings at the time I was very impressed by that i had to say like i said earlier i had to say many of them out loud to go oh that's what that town is um because <clears throat> obviously through it's been a thousand years so the similar sound but it's changed um but i felt he clearly loved doing the research and he he clearly from his use of the words like draugr and scrailing and all that wanted to bring them in Somewhere, and I think Conan the dog, as you mentioned, I think is a good joke because it could definitely say, haha, I'm going to have a dog called Conan because it was okay at that time. So I feel he did so much research. And I felt that he seemed, it seems to be a book that was a very passionate project for him. I think his notes at the end mentioned that, that he just, even though he didn't feel it was going anywhere and he couldn't get it published, like he went back to it to do a second draft after his parents passed away because he felt that this was the book that just had to be written. And I feel that his passion comes through, as does the heart historical research, as does the flow of the story. I found it flowed very well. Um, towards the end, I did not find there was like a speed bump in like the sort of sheer volume of stuff happening. I, I was kind of dying to see what happened because I I knew some of these things historically happened, and I was trying to see how that all played out. And he clearly, like I said, put a lot of time into working out how it should, how he should blend the two, weave the fact, factual and the fictional together. So it felt quite real to me. And um, I'm also curious, Rick, um, would you be open to us making this the episode if things sure, yeah. pan out with this yeah. guest? 
I seem to have been the ideal Patreon, being slightly related <laughs> to one of the characters and actually studying what happened right. in historical events. All right. Well, it like, was, we studied this in school. Right. Uh, as I say, it was your weird, Rick, <laughs> to, be, yeah. to be on this episode. It was my fate. <laughs> <laughs> it was your weird. It was your geesh to be on this episode. <laughs> geesh. Oh, that's, a, that's a new one. I've heard Gesh. Gaius and geese. I haven't heard geese. <laughs> geese. Uh, it does appear once in this book, right? I think they once only once. Yeah. The other word I like really like was weird guild. Oh, yeah. That shows up a lot. Uh, which I think that shows so up at least four, three or four times. It's geesh because an S is an on its own is an SH in Gaelic. So it should be geesh, but it is traditionally pronounced geus now. I don't know what point it flipped over. Again, there's only 19 letters in the, in the Gaelic alphabet. So there's combo letters that have multiple meanings. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so transitioning this over to a gaming conversation, what came up for you guys in terms of gaming? What would you like to steal from this? What kind of inspired you with this? Um, so I had two main things. Sorry, you go ahead. Go, go ahead I had go ahead, two go main ahead. things. One is, as we discussed earlier, the world of blending the Norse, the kind of the Christian, the um, the older, the Tuatadon, and the, the Gaelic pre-Christian spirits and so on. I thought that was a great world. There was, there is a game on Kickstarter that's been stalled, which is trying to sort of represent some of that world, probably more indexing heavily on the Irish stuff. I've forgotten the name of it, but it, it's been stalled through COVID. Um, but I have actually paid for a copy of that, which I thought would have come by now, but it hasn't. Um, so I find that world is really interesting because you can have different magic systems, you can have different types of characters, different types of armor and so on, such as <clears throat> the, the several references in the book to the fact that the Irish just didn't wear armor, which is considered not manly, whereas the Vikings were would think, why on earth would you not wear armor? Because you want to survive this battle. So you could blend a lot of these different cultural concepts into some kind of game that would have, still have a lot of diversity. And you could spread it across, like the Vikings were so prevalent in their raids and settling, it's all over Northern Europe and even as far as Byzantium. So it could make a, a great campaign world to set it in. And then the other thing I thought would be gaming is going from the micro of an individual player or players in a party to the macro. Say if you have a giant epic battle in the campaign that then could the players switch and become various commanders and you play the game through Warhammer or some other gaming uh, rules so that you could actually have this titanic battle essentially being players. And even though essentially the players might come from one side, I'm sure when it gets down to it, to a tabletop war game, they would go hell for leather to try and beat the other players, even though they're in the same party in an actual game, just for fun. So those are the two things I would take away most from this book. And Hoy, as somebody who um, chose this as one of the options for orcs everywhere, I'm curious, how does reading this change how you look at orcs in gaming potentially, or does it? Um, I really like the fact that, um, you know, as people talk about make your monsters different or give your monsters a meaning again. And so I like that the orc here is, it's orkneyus, I guess, which is the Anglo-Saxon word, but it also could be the Fomorians, which are the sort of the evil giants of wealth, you know, of Irish mythology, right? And so they're just talking about Baylor of the, uh, you know, the, you know, Baylor of the eye. Um, so that the orc is being interpreted through the cultural lenses of these three, you know, similar or related, not not one hundred percent, but you know, um, uh, Northern European cultures that have, um, I, I won't say similar, but they have communicated with each other, so they have certain similar um, uh, worldviews in certain regards. 
Um, so, but there's a different perspective on each of them on what the orc constitutes, right? And so, in this case, he's literally the children of you know the Jotuns, right? I mean, he's he's truly mythical. He's not just another humanoid, you know, race. Although he's physically mortal, right? Um, doesn't age, but he's otherwise physically mortal. Um, so, I really like this um, because I think he and he's i think he's written some blog entries about this it's like he's trying to say like listen the orc can't just be a stand-in for a human culture right it can't just be like the noble savage it can't be the cockney warrior it can't be uh you know sort of more racialized elements like um you know they're standing in for mongolians the way that um you know a lot of people think that tolkien was doing or at least you know the the, the devilish easterner um so i think he does a pretty good job of showing that this Connor, as they call themselves, have their own values. They're not in all values that any of us would want to live by, but they seem to be sort of internally consistent. Um, so I think that's a that's a, a good job, and I think this would work well in a game like um, games that are very situated in people's cultures and social connections, like RuneQuest. I think would be a perfect game, you know, or when it, any of the variations of RuneQuest would be a perfect game, especially because the combat sort of realistic and gory in RuneQuest. Um, and that there's multiple magic systems present in here. There's there's what the the witch queen is doing. That's what Maeve is doing. Um, you could even say that Etain is a cleric. There's a couple times where she basically does some sort of like dispel evil, right? Um, but that could be spiritual magic in one of the, you know one of the rune quest magic systems. So I think it is pretty successful. It, it's not just like oh they're green and they're misunderstood. I mean he's, he's <laughs> Grimnir is bad, right? Um, but bad by our modern values but he doesn't seem to be much worse than all the other people that he's dealing with it's more a matter of degree than kind um so i think that was interesting um yeah, yeah his him. his morality is based on revenge he's like no 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 like i have this i have this oath i must fulfill my oath like this is my morality as opposed to saying killing is bad or killing is good like he's like you don't understand like this this is the thing i've committed to i must do this and i must forgo my life to do this so in his mind he's being very moral like it keeps presenting his viewpoint consistently that way mm -hmm. i think the one thing that is interesting is supposedly he's the last of his race right, right. so it'd be interesting to see like if you ever did another story that went back it's like oh no Grimier, he totally misunderstood what we were all about but he's the last one so <laughs> you know, right? no we're, we're really all about you know high culture or whatever but um, well, he meets those creatures he calls his cousins yeah but he's quite happy for them to kill each other right the the, the, the well. Vergar, yeah the, the dwarves yeah. um i think there's also some interesting little throwaways um again uh, i like that he has his pouch that's from the roman legions and that's actually that's one of the roman legions that was destroyed in the tudorberg forest by the you know and the by the by the uh the goths and the vandals in the battle of the tudorberg forest he's got the 19th legion like pouch um so i thought that was pretty funny so i think it was successful in that regard and i think it would be work very well in like a role master rune quest sort of more realistic grounded fantasy game but equally i still think you know again you could still see it as a cleric and grimnir as like you know an eighth ninth tenth level fighter you know warrior in a, in sort of a dcc context so it, it would still work in you know sort of more trad uh level you know level fantasy game what's your thoughts jeff sorry i was just getting messages from the guest um so i was honestly pretty distracted during most of that yeah. um she's officially bowing out no worries such is life yeah. um 
Yeah. So we were just talking about, so you were talking about orcs. So how successful was it for you as an attempt to create an orc that was interesting and not just fodder, you know, like a cannon fodder or sword fodder for you, Jeff? Uh, I'd say it was really successful. I, um, I think this book did a really good job of making orcs not immoral or amoral, but they have a different morality than we do. They see the world in a di- through a different lens and a different cultural context. And I think that that was done really well. Because if we look at the way that he behaves with Attain and um, and the way that he kind of moves Ooh. to the world in general, this is clearly a character who does have his own set of morals and his own value system and his own unique way of seeing the world. And, um, and although our first introduction to him, he seems like an incredibly cruel monster. Um, and he, he is, I mean, what he does to Nile in that, um, in that scene with the, and when we're first introduced to this character, really grotesque, really mm-hmm. upsetting and clearly, clearly a monster in that moment. But as we continue, it's not that he becomes less monstrous. And yes, there is some level of Stockholm syndrome going on between Attain and Grimnir. But um, but even despite that, some that that some level of Stockholm syndrome is present. He does also do really um, caring things and ends up carrying her for six days when she's when she is injured. When he could have just left her behind, in which case she likely would have been raped and murdered. Um, so some pretty upsetting stuff could have happened if he had left her behind, but he didn't. Um, mm-hmm. and he's motivated by things that I think also motivate humans, but, um, I think a way in which reading this could potentially change the way that you approach characters like orc characters and these kind of humanoid races is asking like, what are, what is this character, um, uh, motivated by what are its people motivated by? Um, obviously this motivation would not apply to every member of that people, but at the very least, there are still cultural motivations that, uh, that a population and a culture have, uh, shared together. So I think it's an interesting way to potentially conceptualize some of these, mm-hmm. um, player races and monster races. Right. Right. And I think yeah. his brutality, you think it's bad, but then you encounter, Bjarki half Dane's motivations, which are actually much worse on a, on a more epic scale. He doesn't really care about a huge amount of human suffering. Like when he pushes the maid down the stairs just to pull out her entrails and have a look, even though we later on find out he doesn't even know how to read entrails. He's just kind of doing it as a power thing. Right. And how he forces the father to kill his own son to look at another set of entrails. Right. And at this stage, you know he doesn't even know what he's looking at. And so on. And that hit that. Bjarki Halfdane's evil is so much worse because it's just all made up and it's just really about making other people suffer. Whereas um, Grimnir, he doesn't necessarily care about other people suffering. It's just a case of, I need to do this thing. They're in the way. Now they're not in the way because I kill them. He's not actually trying to make anyone suffer as such. Right. And he's, he's, he's incredibly brutal, but he doesn't gratuitously. It's like, okay, yeah. well, I'm not going to just go, um, you know, he makes threats. So that Etain, like, you know, goes, you know, if you don't, you know, do this thing, I will kill this entire village that we come upon. So don't go shouting. But I think he is the kind of character that would follow up on a threat um, because he would never make an idle threat, but he would never just go into the village and just burn down the village for no reason. Um, unlike, for example, um, the, what's the one Irish clan, the, you know, the Outrider clan, right? And they were specifically told not to be brutal. 
And oh, yes. Yeah. From and then, Clontarf or right, from Clontarf. Connacht. Yeah. Connacht, right. Sorry. They were specifically told not to be brutal by their high king, but then the son of the king tells them, yeah, go ahead. Right. And so they're like, okay, yeah, you know, we're just going to do this thing. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, and it's so casual in the way that they do it, in a way that maybe it's not for, for Grimnir. For Grimnir, it's simply, um, pragmatic whether he's going to do this or not you know yeah he's more lawful neutral or chaotic neutral he's not chaotic evil right at all whereas uh, bjarki might be chaotic evil. yeah another question this potentially brings up is how do we feel about the idea of using christianity as a source of magical power in our gaming is this something that's up for grabs it's always I mean, a minefield but i think yeah. that if you say Oh, it's just like a religion, like all the other religions your character could be. And that's the best objective, neutral way to do it. Obviously, somewhere in the world, people will disagree with that approach. But I think there's less of those people in the gaming world than there used to be. Sure. And there's I also think it's, lots of people in the world who are just against gaming in general and right, already, think right. it's de- already think it's devil work. Right. I think it's perfectly viable, especially in the context of this story, because it is a period of, of transitions in in and you know christianity hasn't won out yet so that it is from the standpoint of the of you know the norseman or grimnir it is you know the white christ is a god and you know you know not their god um and again with a system with a uh, with a game like rune quest which has sort of multiple magic systems i think it's it would be very easy to do this to say okay well christian magic would have just these powers it doesn't have these powers no fireballs right <laughs> you know but it has these other abilities right in dnd well we know that the cleric as written in original dnd you know the up through say first edition AD&D, is sort of more or less judeo christian so you could say that you know if you have Christian characters, they don't have magic users, but they might have clerics, right? Or clerics as written, right? Um, and then other 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 cultures might have the various flavors of magic users. Um, you know, are we ultimately saying where their power source comes from? Is it you know is 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 there a, a Most High? Is there a Jehovah Yahweh? Or you know, or is it just you know their their power comes from something and they call it God? That's maybe for the DM and the people around the table, whatever they feel comfortable doing. Right. But I, I think there is room for that in this particular case. It would be weirder to do like um maybe because it's too close. It would be weirder to do something like a kind of American West story where, you know, you have missionaries or Mormons going out amongst the indigenous populations and then the you know, the the ghost dance is going in co- is is is, you know, pushing back against, you know, the, the Mormons or various other sort of uh, you know, uh, European religions, you know, co- and that may be just because of matter of recent context. Right, where it feels very much more historical, where this feels sort of quasi-legendary. I think there's a game from the the early days of D and D called Man, Myth, and Magic, mm-hmm. that which I've never played, but it kind of assumes that all of these religions were equally valid, and you would pick a certain amount of skills and spells and whatever as the worshiper of somebody in this particular religion versus another one. Um, I've never played it, but apparently it had a system that allowed for that quite well. Well, it also reminds me of something that was told to me through a Ouija board when I was 13 years old. Um, (laughs) I remember me and my friend Josh were um, in a graveyard using a Ouija board that was across the street from his house. Um, And my friend Josh at the time lived in a, a Native American reservation 
um, in Suquamish, Washington, which is also where, um, and in this graveyard is where Chief Seattle is buried, uh, Chief South. And we were in this graveyard and we were using our Ouija board and we were like chatting with this guy. And we're like, this is like dumb 13 year olds in 1993. And we're chatting with this ghost who says his name is Zero. And uh, Zero was telling us that, um, that and who knows, but, I mean, whatever, it's a Ouija board and we're, we're teenagers. But this ghost, this ghost supposedly was telling us that, um, that the more fame you have when you are dead is the more power you have. And he was telling us that Jesus is one of the most powerful ghosts. <laughs> The Holy Spirit, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, kind of funny, the idea of dying and then afterwards just finding out there's just like this super powerful Jesus and this super powerful Elvis. Hitler, unfortunately. <laughs> yep. What's that? And Hitler. Hitler, unfortunately. Hitler, yeah. A lot of power towards the end. Yeah. <laughs> and a really powerful Mother Teresa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pele. Pele. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that seems like almost like such a sort of Alan Moore territory, um, yes. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very much. <laughs> or Neil Gaiman would do that. Just yeah, Neil Gaiman would do it. Um, I think Neil Gaiman, uh, I, we were just talking about, I was just re-listening to our Neverwhere episode. I think Neil Gaiman would do it, but he would not go to the, he would get some really interesting resonances out, but he wouldn't go to the ultimate conclusion that Alan Moore would go to, which is, this, I think, is the, the difference between the two of them as writers. Yeah. Yeah. I think Alan Moore is a lot more willing to go there and risk controversy than mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman might be. Yeah. Neil Gaiman likes to tell stories that make people laugh. And I think that's why he just sort of he's got a good tone to a lot of his work. Mm-hmm. So and, and you know, Alan Moore is this practicing practicing mystic, right? And and so he's 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 really put, he 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 imbues those stories with those resonances that I think um that uh, a sort of a, generalized scholar or person who is interested in would say oh that's cool but they wouldn't give that feeling of belief that alan moore is able to present um so um but i think again i think this book is pretty successful at at talking about ideas of belief uh without slowing down the story so i I thought that was uh uh, you know a um an interesting additional element um that you know some of our other ones like you know they say buy crom but you're like you know you don't really feel like conan has a you know (laughs) really feels that whereas you know when Grimnir is referring to his ancestors or, or something like that, or the various characters, you feel like they, they, they do believe this thing. You, even if they're not actually behaving by what we would consider, for example, Christian standards, they feel like they are, you know? And so that, that to me, I think is a, is um, an interesting aspect of this. Or it's kind of like the Elric stories where you're made very much aware that gods exist and do intervene and can be called up to do it. And actually that could be a good system to role play this in. Kind of the blending of the two worlds, where they're much closer to each other, potentially. Mm-hmm. Well, did we want to go ahead and start wrapping this up for today? Yeah, sure. Why not? So, so Rick, just for the record, the the word is harrow. Since since we're not, we don't have a Hygaxian cut. The Hygaxian word is harrow. Okay, perfect. Harrow. H a r r o w. Harrow. Yep. Yeah. I've been to Harrow in London, and it's very are. genteel in comparison. <laughs> Uh, my summary from the book would be it was great world building great non-othering another um good story very well told and i'm actually going to get the second book there's only one other grimnir book and read it and i'll let you know how that goes 
Yeah, I'm definitely interested. Also, there will be a third Grimnir book, I think, a year from now. I think it's a publication date, is what it looks like, too. So I'm definitely interested. I, I don't think Etain is in it, which I think is a miss, but um, who knows? Maybe there's another female character that'll bring it more depth. I think that's the case because it moves forward like 200 years. It's still in the Middle Ages, but it's it's 200 years forward in time. So, And given the epilogue, it would make sense that she's not a part of that story. Yeah. 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 Um, By the way, all the references in that, that epilogue are made up. I checked them all. <laughs> I thought there might be some historical link, which is what he was going for, but they're, they're all made up. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're going forward hundreds of years at a time, I hope we also find Grimnir in like 1978 New York City. That'd be um, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like a, uh, or, or Jack the Ripper or something. Right. I think a, a, a James Elroy story starring Grimnir would be terrific. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of like bad man private eye in los angeles or <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, grimly just, just not karnaki i don't want I don't right want right more no more karnaki <laughs> <laughs> i think we've actually read everything karnaki at least by hodgson at least so i think whether or not we have more detectives it won't be karnaki so. <laughs> all right well rick is there anything you would like our listeners to know about you or anything that you're doing or places they can look for you if you want to people if you want people to look for you i know you're not <laughs> a traditional guest in that way but um i feel suddenly elated um no I'm, i do uh, a lot of logos on the side my url that can easily find me is behance.net slash logo guy which is a different one to the one that i had before um, and i i do like and uh, i very much enjoy doing fantasy or science fiction type logos all the time which i don't necessarily charge people for because I find it so much fun. So that's Behance.net slash logo guy. And when he said he doesn't charge people for it, that that's not true. Pay him money, give him money. But yes. like tech companies pay me, yes. But but, <laughs> but uh, of course, yeah. So our listeners, this is this is the guy who designed the Appendix N Book Club logo. So if you're right. listening to this podcast, you see that awesome, that awesome, um, I'm not going to call it the, the B word because that's yeah. a copyrighted item. Right. So right. There, there's an awesome eye monster right. uh, holding a book that right, has right. a letter N on it. Right, right. Uh, that is the work of the uh, Magnificent Right. Rapper. And and our alternate logo too with the, the book in, in sort of the wizardy green too is also yeah. Rick. So there you go. Thank you so much, Rick. No All problem. Right. So, um, I actually have some books for our next poll, by the way. Cool. What's that going to be? I think we're going to return to this theme of uh, high school favorites, since that was my very first poll. And so we will do, let's say, uh, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, Robert Lynn Asprin, editor, uh, not the author. Uh, the Thieves, Thieves World, first book in the Thieves World series. Let's do uh, CJ Sherry's Down Below Station. and. Let's do the first Planet of Adventure book by Jack Vance, City of the Chash, also sometimes just known as the Chash, um, because he, he gave it, he had a preferred title. So those will be the four for high school favorites, too. Ooh, fun. I like it. Yeah. Of those, I've only read one of them. Which one do you think it is? I'm going to guess Hitchhiker's Guide. Right. I'd guess that, too. Yeah. Hitchhiker's. Yeah. 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 And um, it's funny, my, my partner has a, the number 42 tattooed on his wrist. Um, and I'm 42 years old right now, so I keep telling people that he has my age tattooed on his wrist. <laughs> you'll just be 42 forever until he changes it. You'll, you'll never get, you'll never age. It'll be like a, you know, it'll be like a picture of you know the number of Jeff Goad on your. 
<laughs> and then you could get a tattoo artist to maybe change the two to a three, just add a little curve at the end next year. <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> well, I didn't get a chance to prep the normal list of people who I would be thanking from our Patreon this time. But, you know, thanks to Rick for joining us. And our patrons do get to vote on our polls and they get to attend these recordings. And um, normally we give them a shout out at the end of the episode, but not this time. Ha ha. Uh, but you are very much appreciated. So, yes. But thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So please come back. Um, at this, as of this uh, recording, this might be the the end of Twitter. Uh, but if you if Twitter still exists, you can find us on Twitter at at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you want to email us, email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail dot com. And Jeff, tell us a little bit more about the Patreon. Um, I don't know. I think I just kind of said everything there is to say about it at the moment. All right, um, so it's just Patreon at appendixnbookclub, right? Oh, yes, that's true. There, there, there's <laughs> how you get there. Absolutely. It's patreon.com slash appendix and book club. And, um, and also, even if Twitter does continue, I'm, I'm considering whether or not I still want to continue to be a part of the platform, too. So there's also a possibility that appendix underscore n might either go away or be ha- passed over to Hoy to take over. I'm not sure. I'm questioning whether or not I still want to be a part of it, but we'll see. Um, but that's all I have to say today. So I recognize that my um, um, that my I got a little cranky at one point in the episode dealing with the, the guest stuff. Um, so thank you for being present with me through that. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Right. Well, uh, regardless, I'm glad I read this book and I'm glad I get a chance to talk to you guys again because it's always fun. Yeah, and I'm glad that our um, listeners will get to listen to this fun conversation and get another peek into what our patron book clubs look like, because it really is like one of the it's 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 easily half of what makes this project as fun as it is, is chatting with our patrons. Hey, patrons. I can't understand why people don't get more involved because it is so much fun. Yeah, there you go. So if you get a chance and, you know, we're always happy to hear from you from all the other routes, too, as well, although it's a little obviously a little slower to respond to stuff like email and tweets than just a talk face to face so uh, we will see you out there in the stacks I guess yeah you know. the library is closed Hello, Appendix N Book Club listeners. This is Oliver Brackenbury, editor of a brand new publication, New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine. From an in-depth essay on C.L. Moore by Cora Bueller, to a review of Kirk A. Johnson's latest book, to an original story by SNS veteran David C. Smith, to a story by emerging author T.K. Rex, New Edge Sword and Sorcery covers the genre's past, present, and exciting future. Made with love for the classics and an inclusive, boundary-pushing approach to storytelling, there is something for everybody. Check it out at newedgeswordandsorcery.com.